Well, good morning, and happy, happy Mother's Day. One common denominator here, we all had a mom, right? And that's a wonderful thing. And to all the mothers here today, or those that want to be or have been, I want to say happy Mother's Day. And uh, it, was, it was really cool to see a little baby girl here who may someday be a mother, quite a chance at that, and then to meet her mother, her grandparents, and her great-grandmother all in one service this morning. So uh, the, the great and wonderful cycle of life and appreciation of mothers is there for all of us. So happy Mother's Day. Um, we're going to look today uh, on Mother's Day 2019 at the final book in the Bible, just a small piece of it, in the Revelation of John. And Revelation is a book that, like many of us here, is strange and wonderful, um, you know, all at the same time. Uh, people have historically uh, gotten very confused about the meaning and message of the Apostle John's book. It's full of all these images. Some of them are really stark, almost shocking. Some are inspiring. There's interlaced metaphors that kind of stick with each other. And some are related to the historical practices and words of the Jewish prophets from many generations uh, before Jesus. Some people say that uh, Revelation describes future events. Some people believe that it describes things that happened in the first century. Sometimes people say it's a timeless metaphor that applies at different points in time in history. And some people have a view of the Revelation that's synthetic. It's a little bit of all those things uh, mashed together. Um, some people, many ideas about Revelation. But one thing is for sure, Revelation is specifically not about events. The very first words of the book of Revelation remind us it's not about events. It's about a person. John's introduction to this final book of Revelation says, this is the revelation of Jesus Christ given by God the Father. What's Revelation about? Is it about the future? People stretch all kinds of weird historical stuff in. I remember when I was in college, there was this book, The Late Great Planet Earth, and he was sure that this book, in, or this imaginary grouping of people that's mentioned in Revelation was Russia, and this was China, and this was North Korea, and this is America, and we had bears and all these different things in this description. And um, people got really confused because they forgot that the Revelation is a revelation of Jesus, not a description of history or a prediction of history. It's about Jesus' final triumph, God's perfect love and mercy that's for all of us through Jesus Christ. So let me read from the seventh chapter, uh, verses 9 to 17. It goes like this. I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, tribe, and people, and language. And they were standing before the throne and before the Lamb. They were wearing white robes. They were holding palm branches in their hands, and they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and four living creatures, and they fell down on their faces before the throne, and they worshipped God, saying, Amen. Praise and glory and wisdom and thanks and honor and power and strength be to our God forever." and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders asked, these in white robes, who are they? 
where did they come from? And I answered, sir, you know. And he said, these are they who have come out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore, they are before the throne of God, and they serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them in his presence. Think about this as as the motherly side of God. He'll shelter them in his presence. Never again will they hunger. Never again will they thirst. The sun will not beat down on them in a scorching heat. For the lamb at the center of the throne will be their shepherd. He'll lead them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. In 1835, a man named Frederick Faber, Frederick Faber, wrote a hymn based on this text. I must say it's one of my favorite, favor, favorite, never mind. Okay. goes like this. It's actually a beautiful hymn. I shouldn't sully it with, uh, with, with any kind of humor. And that wasn't very good humor anyway. Um, my God, how wonderful thou art, thy majesty how bright, how beautiful thy mercy seat in depths of burning light. How wonderful, how beautiful the sight of thee must be, thine endless wisdom, boundless power, and awesome purity. Yet I may love thee too, O Lord, almighty as thou art, for thou hast stooped to ask of me the love of my poor heart. This hymn speaks to the majesty, power, and tender love of God in a few short stanzas. And this text inspires that hymn. What does John the seer, as he was called, see when Jesus is revealed to him in this text? First of all, we see a Jesus as at the center of all existence, on the throne, the ruler of all things. Theologians call this the the panto-crater. Pan means all, crater, the ruler. The ruler of every single thing that exists. And and here's how John describes this. I looked, and before me was a great multitude that no one would count. From every nation, every tribe, every people, every language, standing before the throne and the Lamb, and they were wearing white robes, and they were holding palm branches in their hand. An innumerable crowd worshiping the Lord. Now here's the interesting thing in this vision. This innumerable crowd is every people every nuanced subgroup, generation A to Z. At the time that John wrote this book, there were 40,000 Christians in the world. And he saw how big Jesus' salvation was and how it would reach the whole world and every tongue and tribe and nation. And in the final summation of things, people from every age, from every racial group from every ethnic gathering will be together, focused on and united in Jesus Christ. Nothing separating or boundarying people from one another. Perfect union around the worship of Jesus. And the crowd is marked by white robes and palm branches. Now, this is interesting. The white raiment was always a sign of priestly purity. You know, that we are told that we are part of the priesthood of all believers as Christians. 
And you know, Summer discussed many of the aspects of baptism. To, to really do a full lecture on baptism and everything it means only takes about three years. So Summer did a great summary. But one aspect of that washing that took place was in the priesthood in the, in the Old Testament, the ordination of the priest was completed with a pouring on of water. So this morning, even with Elizabeth, we ordained her to this priesthood of all believers that she would be one of those witnesses in white expressing the purity and wonder of God to this world and someday when her time has come to an end, she'll stand before the Lord Almighty in white raiment and worship him forever along with her relatives, her ancestors and people from everywhere in the world. Isn't, isn't that a, a just a, a gorgeous, gorgeous picture? So what we have here is the imprint of God having saved every soul, placing them in this shiny white raiment and claiming their priesthood, that they're worthy to minister to God himself and be in his presence and the comfort of his presence forever. And palm branches, think about Palm Sunday again on this, palm branches were a sign of the victor. In 382 B.C., I think it was, Virgil wrote the Aenid. And in the Aenid, you will see a quote, the palm is the victor's prize. And so when someone won a battle, when someone won a race or a contest, the palm branch was the prize. And so everybody that's standing before Jesus in white raiment made pure and holy by God is is waving a palm branch that A, celebrates Jesus as the winner, but shares in that winning with him. They're holding the winner's prize. Paul talked about us running our race, finishing the courts, and receiving the prize in heaven that's before us. These people are holding the prize and sharing Christ's triumph with him. So in a sense, they're worshiping him, but he's sharing his righteousness and glory with all these people and, and stating that he, the Lamb of God, the risen one, and all those with him have produced a victory over sin, death, evil, decay, and disorder. And now in heaven, everybody who's been saved stood there holding these palms and worshiping God. You know, I've often thought, I just want to mention this for anybody here who thinks this way, I'm a very practical person. I've thought about what it would be like when my days end and I go to heaven. And I'm not really afraid of dying or going to heaven as that time gets closer, particularly it holds much less dread, I think, for people. But I got to tell you this, when I show up in heaven and I see God as God is, it's going to scare the hell out of me, okay? Scare the hell out of you too. And it'll fill you with heaven. And that, that transformation is final and perfect, and we fall down before God in gratitude for his great mercy. That white raiment, is a reflection of God's purity, not mine. The palm in my hand that calls me a winner is Christ's victory shared with me. I'd be empty-handed without that. Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. All the angels, reading this text again, were standing around the throne, the elders and four living creatures. They fell down on their faces and they worshiped God saying, Amen. Praise and glory and wisdom and thanks and honor and power and strength be to our God forever and ever. This passage is bristling with action. Um, Do you ever remember when you were a little kid 
and you tried to tell a story to your parents, like when you came home, you were really excited. And I remember the colonel saying this to me, and I go, and then, you know, and, and, and the thing, and, and then, and, and then, and you kept saying, and then, and then, and then, do you remember that, being all excited, or have you had your kids do that? And my dad, the colonel, used to say, slow down and spit it out right, you know? So this text goes, and then one of the elders asked me, these white robes, who are they? Where'd they come from? And wisely, John the seer says, sir, you know, and he said, these are they who have come out of the great tribulation. They've washed their robes. They've made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter him in his presence. Isn't that gorgeous? It's the ultimate idea of a parent. Do you remember being a child and feeling sheltered? Maybe some of us didn't have good experience. And if, if, if I told you, I'm very sorry. And God will heal you eventually because we're going to hear about heaven being a place where every tear gets wiped away. But for many of us, the experience of being a child was feeling safe and surrounded and looked after. It's gorgeous, this tender, eternal, protective, cleansing, and curative presence of God. And Christ's victory over all the empires and forces of sin and death is out. He's conquered the tribulations of life, great and small. By the way, the word in here, the great tribulation, some people have made that out to be a once-in-history event. I don't think so. Uh, the word the in the Greek that precedes great tribulation is not like the, the definite article necessarily. It just means an event, the great tribulation, or a, a description of kinds of events. It's like if somebody said, where, where are you from? And this guy tells me, I'm from down south. And I said, oh, you don't have an accent. Where about? And he goes, well, Tacoma and Olympia mainly. Oh, that's south. Then I know Julie Edson that's from Florida, and when she says south, it means a different thing. So the south can mean a lot of different things, right? The Great Tribulation is a way of saying that people have triumphed over sin and death throughout time. And the tribulation, I believe, is just life itself. Yes, there have been huge tribulations like the Holocaust, World War II, Stalin's purges, Idi Amin's dinner parties where he ate his literally his enemies. And I think of Nero burning Christians alive, covered with tar, as torches to light his garden for garden parties. Those were great tribulations. But all of us face the tribulations of life. Friend and I here were talking about one tribulation, and that's to live through the change of the generations. And we were thinking about our mothers coming up on Mother's Day weekend and missing them. And, and having sweet memories, but sadness for, for mom being gone. Um, we've tried to travel faithfully through this world, and uh, we commit regrettable sins. We suffer sins from other people. Our bodies conk out. We suffer betrayals. Our minds fray. And those, too, are great tribulations, believe me. I, I remember a guy wrote a cartoon once in a Christian magazine where this lion in the, in the first century in a, in a Roman arena, this lion had a Christian martyr in its mouth and was beginning to bite down, and the martyr said, Oh, good thing I don't have to go through the Great Tribulation. Um, hey, I think it's a pretty great tribulation to be eaten in public by a lion. I don't know about you, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to vote heavily in that direction. So tribulations happen, but in the end, Christ himself conquers those tribulations. We don't go around them. We don't go over them. We can't dig under them. We go through them. And Christ gives his safe presence and guides us through.
And his presence is our prize, even when we suffer. And our text today comes to this roaring, symphonic finale. finale. Listen to this. and I've got, a, I've got an old spiritual hymn that you're going to help me do antiphonally. We're going to kind of do a congregational rap here in a second. That's the rap of the sermon and kind of a rap feel. Um, Never again will they hunger. Never again will they thirst. The sun won't beat down on them, nor scorching heat. For the lamb at the center of the throne will be their shepherd. He will lead them to springs of living water. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Now there's this old song. A guy named Andre Crouch covered it. And I absolutely love the song. So what I'm going to do is, is do the first call out of, the, of this hymn, this, this, this spiritual, and then you're going to do the back half. And your back half is, we are going to see the king. Can you, let's do this together. We are going to see the king. We are going to see the king. Okay? No more hunger there. We are going to see the king. No more thirsting there. No more burning sun there. Only Jesus there. Springs of living water. No more crying there. Well, hallelujah, hallelujah, we are going to see the king. Amen? Amen? Bring it, amen? Lord, we thank you for your triumph over sin, the death, the grave, evil. We thank you that you're the one who brings us through the the triumphs, the tragedies, the tribulations of life in this world, and there's not a single thing we suffer that you can't cure. There's not a single indignity that you haven't endured and can't cover. There's no mistake we've made that you can't redeem and use to build us and change the world in the way that you want it to be. You are the Lord and King of all. And on this Mother's Day, We fall at your feet. We worship your majesty, but we also receive your tender love beyond what we could even imagine from a mother. We present you our tears. We offer you our faces to wipe them away. The victories we have in our lives, the places where we've shined like white raiment, Lord, we give those to you too because they came from you. They're not self-produced. Your wins are our wins and nothing else counts.